So today we spent some time in the teacher room going through the forms that you filled out when you came here that we used to um, learn a little bit about you before we meet you in the practice discussions. And we noticed that so many of you came because you just really felt like you needed a time for retreat. Wasn't this particular retreat even for a lot of you. It, it just happened to fit and you were hungry for the kind of nourishment that we get when we're here uh, in the silence and working with deepening our practice and having a time to reflect. And for some of you, it's, it, has, it is a time to reflect on some particular piece of suffering. Um, sometimes it's a death and sometimes it's an illness, yours or another's. Sometimes it's difficulties in the relationship world or the work world. All the many things that make up our human condition. And so these are the kinds of things that brought you here today, tonight, to the end of this first full day of practice. And we began, we began again today, began again for many of you, with the simplest of instructions. Just be here. And actually here is a wonderful mantra for practice at this point. Just be here, here, in this body, with this breath, with this room, with this community, just to be here. And also to be here with the pain and with the sad heart and with the difficult knee and the aching back and the tiredness. Just simply here. Pretty much at every retreat I teach, I read this simple little poem from John O'Donohoe. He says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I think I read it because I need to read it. (laughs) You know, how often we are surprised by our own unfolding. So here we are, you're unfolding yourselves for this week. And um, in the process of doing that, then we encounter our own pain and our own suffering. Because there are so many, I know you talked about them some this afternoon with Norman, all the difficulties that can come with our practice. And it's hard, isn't it? I mean, is anybody here at the end of the first day who didn't think it was hard? Maybe a few of you had a honeymoon, but then I'll talk to you tomorrow. Because by tomorrow, it'll be hard for the rest of you. But for most people, the first day is pretty hard on a retreat. And, you know, it sounds so easy, just be here, but it's not. And uh, we live in this realm where there is pain, grief, and despair, and sickness, old age, and death. Makes me want to say, yikes, it's too much. You know, so we begin. And beginnings are important. Beginnings are important in every endeavor because the beginning lays the foundation on which everything else is built. (coughs) There's a wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi that talks about the value of and the wisdom in beginner's mind because in the beginner's minds there are many possibilities while in the experts there are only a few. So it's really actually very good to be a beginner and to come here without too many expectations. And we all know what happens, you know, the many things that can, problems that can arise when we um, do have expectations or when we pretend that we're not beginners. You know, I'm really an expert. But then you pretty soon find out that you're not really an expert. So here we are, beginning with the sitting, breathing body, attending especially perhaps to the breath today, allowing it to arise and to unfold itself because breaths unfold themselves, don't they? Just like our hearts. And then to pass in the space of the mind. And, and we've invited you, I hope we remember to invite you to relax 
to relax into the awareness of breathing and, and to simply come back over and over and over again to that simple object of the breath. And when we do that, I think we see how our lively, busy, squirrely, brilliant, cranky minds need training and need discipline. That the breath doesn't, I mean, the mind doesn't want to stay attending to the breath. It wants to go off and do its own thing. And we learn pretty quickly that we have to train the mind and the heart just as we might train our bodies to be healthy and to be strong. And that this coming back again and again and again is part of the training, part of learning to come back when we're lost or we're scared or we're confused um, and grounding ourselves in the breath and in the body, using it as a place to orient ourselves or to calm the mind or just to rest there. And it would be lovely if that were all, (laughs) but it's not. And you're, I'm sure, already seeing that, and again. um, And, you know, often what happens is the things that we've been kind of keeping over here where we can't quite see them, or over there, or under here, whatever, come back, and all the suffering that you hoped would stay away is here with you. And so, once again, the retreat becomes a good deal more like a garbage dump than a place of serene reflection. So it's good that the theme of the retreat is compassion, whether or not that's why you came, because we need it. And last night, we charged you with the job description of being the bodhisattva of compassion. So bodhisattvas and many of the descriptions are these beings that are so great they can hold an entire galaxy in the palm of their hand. Isn't that amazing? It'd be really, really big to have that, be that spacious. Or there's that wonderful piece of the Bodhisattva vow that our Zen friends use all the time in their practice that says, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. That's what Bodhisattvas do. Or when Sharon Salzberg wrote about uh, compassion, she called her book A Heart as Wide as the World. So this is a practice that's demanding that we get somehow really big. And these are beings who are so spacious, they can hold not only your own tears, but there's one image of the Bodhisattva with a thousand arms, and each arm has each hand has a, an eye in it so that all those eyes can see all the tears of the world. So it's an interesting question. How did you do, you know? Were you the bodhisattva of compassion? Yeah? I'm, people are beginning to laugh, you know? Um, so, you know, maybe you did pretty well, maybe you didn't. Um, But that's good either way because you're learning about how it is to be the bodhisattva of compassion. And again, you talked this afternoon about some of the different pains and sufferings that were coming up today, perhaps a lot of them today, just the difficulties of sitting, you know. And I know, I don't know how it is for you, and this is particularly for the experienced students. When I sit a retreat, now, you know, I've been sitting for a long time. And, you know, I think, okay, I know how to do this. I've sat. All these retreats, it's going to be a piece of cake. And then I sit down, and the mind is crazy, and the body is restless, and I don't want to be there. And I'm thinking, why did I decide to do this now? I could have done something else, or I could be home with my dear husband and my dog, and and all of the stuff about, basically, I don't wanna, and it's not fun, and get me out of here. So what do we do when that happens? We get judgmental, right? And we are hard on ourselves, instead of going, oh, poor boo-boo, you are cranky today, aren't you? And you're suffering, and it's hard. You know, that place where 
It's so difficult to hold ourselves with that kind of compassion. So we need inspiration, both just simply to begin, even for the first time or the 77th time, and, and to hold our experience with that open heart. So it's interesting to ask the question, you know, again and again, you know, what inspired you? What keeps you going? So I want to do something tonight that I've done actually several times in the last few years when I've taught here at Spirit Rock. I want to bring in the story of a dear friend of mine, a man whose name was Steve Young, who died nearly three years ago and who lived and worked here at Spirit Rock. And some of you perhaps knew him when he was here. I met him some years before he came to Spirit Rock in Santa Cruz where I was living and teaching. And he came to our Sangha and he was, um, he had moved to Santa Cruz and he was really turning toward practice and he was in the beginner's class, and he was coming to the regular sittings, and he wanted, please, 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 to be in the advanced class. And I was alone, he didn't meet any of the requirements. But he pleaded, and I often try to listen to people who plead, because usually there's good reason. So I said yes, and so he came to all of these classes, and you know, day after day, week after week. And his passion for the practice inspired everyone. You know, it didn't matter that he was a beginner. He really was just burning with a love for the practice. And, um, you know, he was ready to make some changes. He'd had a pretty rough life. And he really wanted to change. He wanted to wake up. Wanted so badly to wake up. So what is this, you know, what is this state of mind that happens, that wants to wake up? So there's a teaching that is about how we can begin and how we can start training the mind and the heart. And this is part, this particular teaching actually comes as part of the compassion material that we will be working with as we work through the retreat. It's a practice from the Tibetan world that's called Lojong. We're not going to teach a lot of the specifics of it, but um, you'll get quite some nice tastings of it, I think, during the week. And this particular teaching is called The Four Thoughts Which Change the Mind. And these are reflections which we can actually use, you can use, you can put them to work for you, which inspire our practice both at the beginning and again and again for years. So they're, they're actually very foundational to the practice. You've got the simple practice of being with the breath and now we're going to add to it these reflections. So there are four of them. The first is the preciousness and rarity of a human life. The second is the absolute inevitability of death. The third is the awesome power of our actions, even the smallest. And the fourth is the pervasive presence of suffering. So these thoughts, they're not uncommon. Probably all of us have had thoughts like these in our lives. And so much of practice is inspired by this kind of thinking. They're really the earmarks of human existence, you know, just how amazing it is to be human at all and, and the strangeness of this thing that we call death and how come everything we do seems to have all these repercussions and, and then all this suffering, you know, what's, what's going on? And so they're the challenges, really, of the human life. They're the source of a lot of the world's great literature and poetry and the basis for a lot of religious practice. So the preciousness of having a human life, and then there's a subclause that goes with it, with the leisure and opportunity for practice. So, you know, you look around in our world today and you say, well, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's so rare to have a human incarnation. There are an awful lot of us walking around the planet now. 
And I was reminded as I was thinking about this today of a cartoon that I think Jack Cornfield used to like to talk about of a couple of deer, you know, standing in the edge of the forest looking out over, you know, over the edge of a hill and there were some hunters down below and one of the deer was saying to the others, why don't they thin out their own damned herds? (laughs) So, mm, that's a good question. We need to thin us out a little bit. But we know... Um, you know, things are precious when they're rare and whatever else you might say about human beings, even even that there are a lot of us, <clears throat> we are still actually vastly outnumbered. The image in the text is that getting a human incarnation is about as rare as there's a life preserver floating on the ocean and somewhere in all of the oceans of the world So somewhere in these oceans is the life preserver and somewhere there is a blind sea turtle. Your chance of a human incarnation is about as good as that sea turtle coming up in the middle of that life preserver. Well, we are a little overcrowded on the planet in terms of people, but actually when you start taking in the bigger picture that we know about in our scientific world these days, the enormity of the cosmos, you know, billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. It's, they're uncountable. We have no idea really how many are out there. And, you know, although we search for habitable planets, astronomers are very busy doing that, um, though, you know, looking for ones that are, might be just the right distance from a star so that perhaps they could support life. And slowly, slowly, you know, they think they may be finding a few Um, I don't know what the count is today, but the last time I thought about it, there were maybe five or six that they'd found. It's going up all the time. So who knows what's out there in terms of other conscious life forms, but it doesn't seem like there's, even if there's some, or even if there's many, there's not that many, and we haven't found any of them yet in the vastness of space that we know about. So here we are, um, kind of lonely in the cosmos, And even on this planet of ours, you know, we're pretty outnumbered. You know, there's trillions of insects and and the life forms that inhabit your body, the ones you don't want to think about. Um, You know, there's so many of them. And then, of course, if you have trillions of life forms inhabiting your own body, and there are 72 of us plus teachers and staff in the room, how many more trillions does that make? It's, you know, it begins to be a lot. And not only that, we're very recent, this thing of being human. You know, when we, all the 4.6 billion years of the Earth's history, and we've only been around for just the last, the weenchiest bit of time. So we're not common, we're rare, and we're precious. And even more precious is the leisure and the opportunity to practice. So just as our planet needs to be in the habitable zone, the right distance from the sun, we as people need just the right balance of difficulty and leisure in order to want to come to practice and then to be able to do it. So Steve, you know, he was burning for this opportunity when I met him. And he'd seen a lot in his life. He knew that he needed and he wanted to give his life to practice. He'd kind of come into the habitable zone, if you will. And so after about a year or so with us in Santa Cruz, which was such a treasure, we lost him to Spirit Rock. (laughs) And he came up here and he came on the staff as a caretaker. So it's been a while now since he died. So some of you may never have met him, you know, but those who have, you know, we would remember his absolutely brilliant, wonderful smile and his great heart. And he always loved to work the gate for the opening of the retreats um, because he wanted to make sure that all of you knew exactly where you needed to go and what you needed to do. And he really wanted to take care of everybody who came. It was very, very, very sweet. 
And then he would come up, he'd be over there on the staff cushions pretty much every morning, early, early, every Dharma talk, and then he'd sit on into the night, late, 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 sitting, sitting, sitting. He was on fire. It was a really wonderful inspiration. And he was blessed with the leisure and the opportunity to do that. So we know the world is filled with people who are in enormous suffering. They're starving or they're living in places of terrible environmental catastrophes or really difficult diseases. They have no homes, they have no resources, there is no time for practice, there's barely enough time to try to survive. That's all they can do is survive. There's no opportunity and there's no leisure. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have enormous amounts of money and wealth, but get caught in greed and the incessant quest for more. We have seen a lot of this being talked about recently. And all of the idleness and the kind of numbness that comes with overindulgence. And that doesn't allow someone to open to practice either. You know, there's a way in which if there's too much, we don't see the opportunity, we aren't drawn to it, and we don't use the leisure. So it's the, it's the exact balance, isn't it? It's interesting, really. You know, enough suffering to kind of make you want to wake up and see that maybe there's something to be seen here, but also enough ability, enough opportunity and leisure. Each one of you has opportunity and leisure. That's really something to reflect on. No matter what your situation is, you're here with a whole week. Christiana thanked you last night for making the time and putting in the energy and your resources, your, you know, the people who support you and the money, everything it takes to get here. And it's an amazing opportunity to have that. I'm joining you next week on the cushion here. I'm going to be a student on a retreat. I can hardly wait. It'll be nice to sit again with the nuns, and I think some of you will be sitting with me then. That's my turn to have the leisure and the opportunity. So then we come to impermanence and the absolute inevitability of death. So this is a huge insight, and this is the one of the ones that really inspired the Buddha himself to begin his journey. So, you know, we most of us, I think, know that story, that he, he also grew up in that world of wealth and indulgence, and his father was predicted when he was born he would either be a world emperor or a Buddha. And his daddy, who was a king, thought, the world emperor thing sounded much better. So he really tried to steer him in that direction, protecting him from seeing the suffering that might wake him him up. Fortunately, since I have adolescent male grandchildren now, I'm beginning to see kind of how the adolescent male works and they want to get out. And after a while, he wanted to get out and see the world for himself. And so really the story is that he snuck out You know, one night he took his driver, his charioteer, and he went into town. And then he saw someone who was really old. And he'd never seen anybody old before. And he went, what? What happened? He's all wrinkled and white and shrunken up and doesn't seem to walk so well anymore. All those things that happen to us when we get old. What's going on? And the driver said, well, he's old. Happens to everyone. And the Buddha said, to me too? And his driver said, yeah, it will happen to you too. And then he saw someone who was sick. Same thing. He'd never seen anybody really sick before. And will this happen to me? Yeah, pretty much happens to everyone. And then he saw someone who was dead. And he'd never seen anything dead before. It was all kept from him. What is this? Will it happen to me? Yes, it happens to everyone. He was just dumbfounded. And then walking along, there was um, a sadhu, a monk, 
who um, seemed to be pretty serene in the middle of all of it. And the Buddha was very interested. Well, who is this? And this is somebody who's given up his householder life and is following a spiritual path. And the Buddha thought, oh, there's something there. There's something about having that serenity in the midst of all this that he was interested in. And that's what started him on the path. Nothing stays. Nothing. Everything changes all the time. Have you noticed? I have the great good fortune to live on a volcano, on an island that has increased in acreage by about 600 acres since I bought a house there 13 years ago. You know, people come to us all the time. I work in the national park as a volunteer. It's different this time, it's changed. You know, this is here and this that was there isn't there anymore. It's always changing. It's such a gift to have the earth be that changeable and all the time. It's right in our face. You come here. Maybe some of you haven't been here for a year or two or three. What happened? Where's the old spirit rock? There are buildings where there weren't buildings and there aren't buildings where there were buildings. And it's changing and it's different. You know, it's it's always changing. And it's everything is always passing on. Already a full day of this retreat is gone. Really gone. It's so astounding to think about that. Now where is lunch? that we had today. Now, you can tell me, well, you know, it's making its way through my body, I know that. But that's not what I mean. You know, lunch itself, the meal, is gone. It's back there with the dinosaurs. It's so gone. But we don't pay attention to it. We don't, we're not so interested in it, especially when we're looking at our own impermanence. We're thinking, preparing to talk about impermanence a year or two ago, And I happened to hear a little bit of music that afternoon and there was a song, I have no idea what song it was or whose song it was, but there was a line that just bowled me over. The line which repeated several times in the song said, if I should ever die. (laughs) Now I ask you, (laughs) if I should ever die. But sometimes I still say, if I die. Now, I'm 74 and a half. My days are numbered. They are. As one of my friends once told me not too long ago, I've lost all opportunity to die young. I'm not quite sure I believe that, but you know, still feels pretty young to me. But the important part is, and the important practice is to begin to realize and to take it in for ourselves. I will die. I will. Some years ago I attended a retreat with Ajahn Amaro who taught us a very wonderful practice which I highly recommend to you. Some of you probably know it. And he suggested that when you say goodbye to someone, now I leave Rebecca at the end of the week and I won't see her for probably another year and I say to Rebecca, goodbye forever. Now, it sounds kind of cool when you hear it here in the hall, but it is breathtaking when you actually do it. When you look someone in the eye and you're not going to see them for a while and you say goodbye forever. Try it. Try it. When we get to the end of the retreat, maybe we can all do it. I don't know. So one day, a little more than three years ago, my friend Steve drove me to the San Francisco airport. I'd been teaching here at Spirit Rock, left me at the airport. I had a couple of phone conversations with him after that, and we didn't say goodbye forever. And it was. I never saw him again. And, you know, it was so unexpected. He had a stroke later that summer, and they discovered he had a very invasive cancer that was everywhere in his body, and he died in three weeks. It was very quick. And 
You know, we all know stories like that. We could probably tell them tonight, you know, all the rude awakenings that come when someone dies so suddenly or we get a diagnosis that we don't want or, you know, your beloved dog or cat or canary is suddenly gone. And these, like those things for the Buddha, the sickness, the old age, and the death that he saw, they're called his heavenly messengers. So these are our heavenly messengers. So for many of us, I mean, look around the room, you know, we're not too many of us spring chickens. A few of us are. But if you're 40, you know, maybe your life is 50% over. It's getting close to 50% over. And if I make it to 90, I did the calculations today. It's 83% over already. But you know, it might be 99.9 because maybe I won't make it back to my bed tonight. Or maybe you won't. It's not morbid to do this. It's really important because it wakes us up. It's so precious what time we have. A very dear friend of mine, a woman who dances in with me in my halal, my hula class, went on vacation this Christmas with some friends and her husband. And they were in line in Lima, Peru, getting breakfast at the hotel. She went off to get some tea. She heard a loud crash. She turned around and her husband was on the floor and he was dead. Like that. Whew, you know, so quick. Don't waste time. Don't waste time. Practice with urgency and with zeal. You know, I don't know if Steve thought too much about this, but I do know he practiced that way. He practiced as though he might not have much time. So we take this on as a practice. We take it as a training. We challenge ourselves. This is the ferocious kind of compassion, I think, sometimes, where we challenge ourselves to look over and over and over again. I had one year, a couple of years ago, I took a period of solo retreat And every morning when I would sit, I made myself say, I'm dying. Not I might die, not I will someday, but I'm dying. Because I am. You know, I'm getting kind of wrinkled and things are changing in the body, they do. You know, if I were a plant in my garden, I'd probably pull me up and throw me away. You know, it's just how it is. Maybe I'd let it, I might give it a few more weeks, but you know. Ajahn Chah taught us, he said, I consider this cup, his teacup, to be already broken. We are already broken. And so we take all these small losses as teachings, you know, whether it's just the broken plate or the neighborhood that's changing or the retreat center that's changing or the dead plant. They're realizing that the day is already over, the building is already falling down, you know, and our lives are ending. Because for each of us, the moment will come when this breath, this amazing breath that you've been hanging out with all day, will stop in that mysterious and unfathomable moment. As I was writing today, I thought of Stephen Levine, who died just recently, wonderful teacher, and one of my very first, quite possibly my very first teacher, because I met him at a simple class that he taught once, years and years ago in Santa Cruz. And on one of the retreats I sat with him, he would put us through this guided meditation in which we died. And he counted, you know, he talked us through the whole thing, you know, your feet are getting colder, all these things. And then he'd pick up the bell, it's too far away for me to reach, and he'd hit the bell, that was the moment of death. I was like, Now, of course, we didn't actually die, so it's not quite as realistic, but it was very, very powerful. There are two more reflections, though. It's not all this. So in this precious and very short life, 
One of the things that we know is that our actions have enormous power and long-lasting consequences. So how can we forget this? But we do, don't we? We so often in our lives, we just barge on ahead, we get impatient, we get irritated, we get angry, and we leave behind us in our wake all those who are hurt and bewildered and wondering what is going on with her today. Really? There isn't anyone in this room, there's no one in this room, who has escaped being harmed by another person. No one. And there isn't anyone in this room who is innocent of harm. We've all done harmful actions. And we know from our own personal experience, how long it takes to recover from some of those actions. Sometimes it seems like we don't really. We have the scars and we do have the scars. Sometimes literally, sometimes emotionally. All our lives, you know, and all the hours of therapy and all the dollars spent on it and all the retreats, you know, all of the things that we do to come to some sense of ease and healing. The reverberations of our actions can go on for so very long. But we also know the reverberations of skillful actions. Think uh, for a moment of all the chain of actions and consequences that have brought you here today, you know? So things that you did, things that other people did that allowed this particular moment in time to arise. There's a uh, teaching that I've liked that talks about how, you know, it doesn't take much to change things. So in this teaching, if you're sailing a boat let's just say from San Francisco to Japan, you think, so you set your course for, okay, Tokyo or wherever. I don't know my Japanese geography very well. And if you change your course by one degree, you're not going to end up where you want to go. By the time you get to the other side of the ocean, you're going to be way off course. One degree. Pretty interesting to think about it. So sometimes it's just that one degree of change in our lives, you know. I remember a student once, I think it was at the beginning of one of the Iraq wars, and he said, you know, I just, I don't know how to create world peace. I just don't. He said, but what I do know is how to be peaceful. So that's what I'm going to do. Isn't that great? He knew how to be peaceful, so that's what he was going to do. That's his one degree. Because as he does peaceful things, there will be consequences from his peaceful actions. This was quite a while ago. I have no idea where he is right now. It would be interesting to find out how that went. And so many people come to us. I, I think every teacher teaches here and pretty much anywhere else would tell you, all the people who come, all of you who come and say, I don't know what I would do without this practice. It has changed my life. You know, and maybe it's pretty simple. You sit, maybe every day or most days or some days or not so very often, but you come to retreats and you read some Buddhist books and it changes your life. And things become a little easier for you and for your whole family. <laughs> my daughters, when they were adolescent and still at home, every now and then would look at me and they would say, Mom, go sit. <laughs> because they knew if I would go sit, then the reverberations would be a little bit better and a little easier for them to live with. I'm still talking about Steve. I thought today, I can't talk about Steve again. But then I realized I wanted to talk about Steve again. You know, it's been three years. I still miss him every time I'm here. The whole community, some of you I know were there were racked with grief when he died. His actions were so inspiring. They are continuing to reverberate. 
I cannot walk into this hall without seeing him over there. You know, he's, he's there. He's got his little, you know, his hat pulled down over his ears and his gray blanket wrapped up around him. And, and so he's inspiring us. And some of you who never met him may now be inspired by him. Isn't that cool? It's so interesting to begin to see that. So then we reflect on the enormity and pervasiveness of suffering, samsara. So, you know, it's rare and it's precious and it's short and we have the possibility of acting in a way that can reverberate and there's still all this suffering. It doesn't seem to come without it, does it? There's just what happens because we have one of these things. We have the human body which is so vulnerable to sickness and old age and death. And we have the suffering that comes because things are so impermanent. And not only are they constantly going away, they're never satisfactory, not for very long. Nothing is satisfactory in a permanent way. And then there's the enormous suffering that comes when we struggle against the way things are, when we just cannot accept that this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Great, great instruction for practice. This is the way it is. If you get news, however you get your news, you know, through your computer news feed or watching the TV, or if you're one of those strange people who still reads newspapers, um, the news is almost unbearable, isn't it? You know, the whole planet is suffering. It's all of the injustice, all of the prejudice, all of the killing, the endless shattered lives and, and species that are being eradicated and families and who are, are shattered and uh, destroyed environments, and even our poor planet, you know, its oceans and the climate are even suffering. It's everywhere and it's unavoidable. And the Buddha saw this and he saw that when we fight against the way things are, which does not mean not working to change them, but when we just, you know, we rail against it and say, no, 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 this is wrong, it should be this way, there's a, a way in which it makes ordinary pain and suffering much worse. And he saw that there would be a way to be with that same suffering that would allow us more space and more ease and actually more potential to work for change when we need to do that. So what else is there to do but practice, actually, in the face of all of this? You know, it's so much. It's the only way to deal with, I think this is Norman's phrase, actually, the serious and unusual problem of having a human life. You know, so it's the only way to deal with it, to go right into it. I think we talked last night about embracing your suffering, you know. To go right into it, to see what is deeply so, and in that way to find some ease. And really seeing that avoidance and denial just creates more suffering. And oddly enough, it does seem strange, doesn't it, that embracing it seems to help. But this is exactly what the Buddha teaches. And he teaches us to begin here. Hakuin has this wonderful verse. He says, at this moment, what more need we seek? As the truth eternally reveals itself, this very place, this very place is the lotus land of purity. And this very body, this very body is the body of the Buddha. Whew. So, you've 
sat some today and you've walked, I hope, and you've done some yoga maybe, and you've just maybe given a little mindful attention to your eating and you kind of paid attention to being alive. That's really what we're asking you to do. You notice that you're here. Notice that you're alive. It's so astounding and cool. And seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and other body sensations and thoughts, that's what it is. That's all there is. Arising, passing over and over in the space of the aware mind. And you get to see what gets in the way. You know, you're always, people talked about that today, how you're always being pulled off here and pulled off there and always coming back, training ourselves to come back. But when we do that, we begin to see, oh, this staying fully present with our situation, this, there may be a way to do this. This is the way to practice with the ending of suffering, a way to cope with samsara. So we come back again and again. We work at developing this awareness that's non-judgmental and inclusive, and we practice just being alive. There's a lovely story about three monks who go on a pilgrimage, and along the way they meet an old woman, I think that's why I like this story, an old woman who had a tea shop. And so they went in and she prepared a pot of tea for them and she brought three cups and she said to them, oh monks, this is such a challenge, I love this, oh monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink the tea. Well, this is really serious because you're, if you have miraculous powers, you're, you're not supposed to talk about them. So, you know, what are they going to do? And so they're, they're immobilized, you know, because you can't pick up the cup of tea, right? Because that wouldn't be proper, wouldn't be polite. So she says, well, watch this decrepit old woman show you her own miraculous powers. And she picked up the cups and she poured the tea and she left. That's the story. So nothing special, nothing special, just being fully here. You know, in some senses they were looking for really special things, weren't they? She was saying, no, it's nothing special, it's just here. It's the cup of tea. It's the deer. It's those insane turkeys out there doing their thing. You know, that's what's miraculous, being here in a way that harms no one. Rebecca was telling us, you didn't tell that story last night, did you? I'm going to tell it now. She got here and she went out into the entryway down in the teacher, the new teacher housing, and there was a deer in the entryway. And the deer looked at her, and she looked at you. You even went and got your camera, right? Yeah, got her phone, took a picture. The deer wasn't afraid, you know, because that deer has lived, there are generations of deer who have lived here where they are not harmed. And so they don't know that people do that. People just walk real slowly and look at their feet and sometimes stand and look at the deer. That's all we do, you know. And so they see that no one's getting harmed. And we learn, we learn that we can be here and harm no one. So my friend Steve, he was really an ordinary guy. You know, he was just a guy. He loved to surf. You know, he had a great girlfriend. He, and he knew a lot about suffering, you know. And he practiced really, really hard and really intensely. And he knew a lot about love. And he left way too soon. And he learned how to be present. And he just was so happy when he practiced. And as I thought of this today, I was thinking he knew well that there's a wonderful saying from Dogen where he says, this ordinary everyday sitting 
is itself boundless joy. Isn't that a, it's such a great teaching. You know, just sitting is itself boundless joy, nothing special, nothing special. And so Steve sat and sat and sat, and you're going to feel that way this week too. You're going to sit and sit and sit. And so it's important to remember that it's precious, it's short, it's really short. Actions really count. And when we learn how to be present and how to act in a way that is non-harming and how to over and over again let go and to be present with the way things are, this is what can bring an end to suffering, both our own and perhaps ultimately that of the world. I'd love to live as the river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So let's sit just the way you are. Don't wriggle around and adjust yourselves and just breathe for a couple of minutes. And may all of us hold our own suffering in that of all beings with a heart as wide as the world with great compassion. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your period of walking. So we'll have walking now until 9 o'clock and then the closing sitting for the day. And I don't know about waiting for the other two. I'm probably a little stuck up here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.